Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. We really appreciate you joining us today. My name is Brian, and along with me is my co-host and fellow soldier of the cross, Jeff. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Brian. Yeah, looking forward to... Uh... Today's topic, which is hopefully will uh, spark some uh, introspection uh, on on people's behalf, because we're going to talk about something that most people would claim they have no problem with, uh, but maybe they do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, today we're going to talk about idolatry and specifically the attraction of idolatry. And you know, Jeff, often when people think about idols. Uh, they often think about, you know, bowing down to a graven image or a big object, and that certainly is idolatry, but I think as we'll get into today, we'll, we'll talk about how really it's m- much more multifaceted than that. So why don't we start out just by talking about, you know, a basic definition of idolatry. And, you know, if you look at a dictionary definition, this comes from Smith's Bible Dictionary. Uh, idolatry is defined here, it says, strictly speaking, denotes the worship of deity in a visible form, whether the images to which homage is paid are symbolical representations of the true God or of the false divinities which have been made the objects of worship in his stead. So, you know, when you think about strictly speaking, yeah, that's kind of the clinical definition of idolatry. And you know, as we were just saying, as I mentioned, you know, most people, when they think of idolatry, they think about, you know, people bowing down in front of something like Buddha uh, or some other type of deity. And, you know, what we want to really do in our podcast today is kind of look at this subject, of course, from a biblical perspective and specifically look at how today, you know, idolatry as defined by the Bible uh, and how we all live our lives today kind of really goes well beyond just the worship of a physical image. So what we'll do is we will start out by kind of looking at idolatry during Old Testament times. We'll then kind of shift gears and look at it, you know, as far as idolatry during the New Testament when Jesus was on the earth and even after he went back to heaven. And then we'll kind of finish up by looking at it today and see the similarities and really differences uh, in idolatry today. So, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you to get things started. All right. So, yeah, first of all, we want to start back in what we would call Old Testament times. And certainly, very clearly, you know, the Old Testament, you know, teaches against, you know, idol worship. Uh, In Ten Commandments, Exodus 20... Uh, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my Commandments, very serious business, so to speak. Continuing on, uh, several chapters later, Exodus 34, uh, starting verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Continuing down, verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, And one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Again, very serious business. 
in some ways somewhere parallel with uh, you know the, the term harlot, sexual immorality, uh, what God considers you know unfaithfulness, you know worshiping other gods, false gods, worshiping other false images, uh, including you know making even a carved image of himself, so, so to speak. Now, the, part of our uh, title today of our podcast is the attraction of idolatry. So, you know, within the Ten Commandments, very clearly, thou shalt not. But we see that the nation of Israel had what we might call a chronic problem with idolatry. And in all fairness, it really started before the Ten Commandments before Mount Sinai. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 31, beginning with verse 19, people within uh, you know, Jacob's extended family, of course, Jacob, name later, changed to Israel, and his descendants became the Israelites, okay, uh, within Jacob's uh, family. Genesis 31, 19. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel who was one of Jacob's wives, had stolen the household idols that were her father's. Hmm. And again, this is one of Jacob's wives. Uh, Genesis 35, verse 12. Uh, after having departed from uh, Laban, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. So they had a problem with false gods, false idols, household idols, you know, even at that point. That continued with Jacob and his descendants going on down into Egypt. We know that because over in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14, 15, says, now therefore, sir, and of course, at this point, they're in the promised land. Joshua's kind of reflecting back on their history. Uh, Joshua 24 now, therefore, serve the Lord and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Still needed to. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the river. So evidently, when they were down in Egypt, they had a problem with false gods. Uh, at Mount Sinai, they had problems with false gods. Exodus 32, verse 4, of course, the whole scene with the golden calf that Aaron had made. And after he had made it, he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And of course, it didn't stop there with that scene, didn't stop with the Ten Commandments, continued on, Judges chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 11. Uh, after they had entered into the promised land. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Again, that's an idol, false god. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Um, fast forward a, a number of centuries, you know, even Solomon, the, you know, wisest person that God gave wisdom to, you know, he fell into this trap, same trap. First Kings chapter 11, the King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely you will, they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Continue on. For so when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So Solomon went after... Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now, we could ask, and I think legitimately so, how could this be? 
I mean, with the nation of Israel, I mean, direct manifestation of God's power in Egypt with the ten plagues, crossing the Red Sea, manifestations at Mount Sinai, crossing the flooding Jordan River, you know, miraculous fall of the walls of Jericho, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, their punishment for disobedience in the wilderness uh, during the time of Judges, the cyclical pa um, cycles of foreign oppression, and then miraculous salvation by the various judges, miracles by the prophets. How could this be? How could they keep falling into idolatry despite all these miraculous kind of manifestations? Well, one of the things you have to understand is the nature of the false gods in that historical context. For instance, we've already mentioned several of them. Uh, Baal, 1 Kings uh, 16, uh, who I think was equivalent to Molech, uh, Leviticus 18.21. The Ashtoreth, or Ashtoreth, or Queen of Heaven, 1 Kings 18, verse 19, Jeremiah 7, verse 18. Chemosh, of the Moabites, and Milcom, of the Ammonites. Which, interestingly, side comment, uh, Moabites and Ammonites, if you dig back into your biblical history, those were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Uh, in fact, if you go to Wikipedia, uh, which, which I did, they had at least 50 gods in the Canaanite, religion, uh, Canaanite region in, uh, in that time. Why were they so attractive? Well, here's some things that perhaps come to mind. In some ways, it was convenient. I mean, they didn't go, have to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship the true God. Under every green tree, under every high hill, they could, you know, conveniently worship their local God, so to speak. There was a, the, uh, the draw or the attraction, uh, the uh, allure, you know, intermarriage with non-Israelites, like with Solomon. There could be some sense of peer pressure. Like from the surrounding nations, you know, later on they said, you know, we want a king like all the nations round about us. So there may have been some degree of peer pressure. But honestly, Brian, I think when you dig into it, probably one of the biggest draws was that of sexuality, lust, lust of the flesh. Uh, Baal, or Baal, uh, god of fertility, god of rain and dew, in, which in that area, indispensable for fertile soil there in Canaan. The Ashtoreth, or Astarter, goddess of sexual love, goddess of fertility. So there's probably a lot of, you know, sexual draw, particularly for the Israelites, who were commanded to abstain from these kinds of things. Well, here's some other gods that say, hey, you can, you can do this if you want to. No big deal. Uh, Brian, any, any thoughts as in this particular uh, part about uh, Old Testament times? Yeah, you know, Moses warned the Israelites against worshiping images or elements of creation. Um, as you know, God, because God didn't present himself in a physical form to them. And if we look in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses warns them and talks about how God did not show himself to them on purpose. So, Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, he says, Take careful heed to yourselves. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Oreb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, like the likeness of male or female, or the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. Verse 19, and take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. So Jeff, you know, mankind has seemingly always had this tendency to want to worship something that they can physically see. Uh, and, you know, so once again, whether that's an, uh, some carved image that they make uh, that looks like an animal or a male, female or whatever, or just looking up to the heavens and worshiping the sun or the moon or the stars. And, and you know, the Bible says 
in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that the very nature of faith, it says, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So, you know, we can understand why God did not show himself to them. Uh, He didn't want them to worship some physical image. He wanted them to have faith based on what they did not know or or not see, I guess I should say. Uh, So anyhow, it's just kind of interesting when you think about this desire man seems to always have to want to physically or worship something physical. Yeah, good point. And that, in my mind, takes us back to the original definition that you read earlier, where, you know, an idol can be, uh, again, strictly speaking, one of two things. It can be, you know, worshiping a false god or goddess, can also be worshiping the true God, but using some kind of physical representation, carved image, statue of, you know, the invisible God, but I'm, I'm going to create something physical, tangible that I can bow down in front of, even though I'm worshiping the true God. That's also wrong. So you got both, both forms uh, that were, you know, condemned and unfortunately practiced, you know, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, so again, attraction of idolatry. There's even though clearly condemned, people were punished for it. Still, there was that draw uh, that that lured people into doing it over and over and over again. Yeah, and I'm always amazed also how you know based on how impressive God's creation is. You think about like the Egyptians that worshipped the sun for a period of their some of their dynasties. You know, they, they they look at the sun, it's so magnificent. Surely this is something great. Or you think about like the American Indian and, you know, whether it's an eagle or the wind or whatever, once again, taking God's creation, something wonderful that he created and attributing something holy to that in and of itself because it's just so amazing, you know, so. Right, exactly. So that was Old Testament. Brian, you want to take us, uh, fast forward us into uh, New Testament times? Yeah, so under the New Testament, uh, we also saw a lot of idolatry and idol worship. Uh, For instance, if you look over in Acts chapter 14, you know, we see the worship of Zeus and Jupiter and Hermes and Mercury, depending on the Greek or Roman names there. And if we look in Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, it says, And Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But notice the reaction of Paul and Barnabas. It says, but when the apostles, verse 14, Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So here again, we see another example of how these multitudes were just so bent on, you know, elevating Barnabas and Paul and, you know, worshiping deities, if you will, these false deities and physical things. And Paul tried to convince them, Barnabas as well, why are you doing these? You know, we're just men, you know, and and it's really only God that we should serve. But it just goes to show you when people get in their mind, this is what they want. This is what they believe. Uh, They they will reject what the Bible clearly teaches. We also see Artemis and Diana in Acts chapter 19 and verse 24. For those of you that have read it, you might remember that there were men who were making silver shrines uh, of Diana for the people to worship. And uh, they ran into some trouble with Paul because he taught them that these were basically worthless and false, and it hurt their business. They were making a lot of money selling these silver shrines. Uh, We also see other Greek and Roman goddesses in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Here, you know, Paul preached a sermon on Mars Hill in Greece. And I want to read just a portion of this because I think it's pretty powerful to once again show 
how the the Greeks especially they worshipped about anything, and they had idols to about anything. So in Acts chapter seventeen, beginning in verse sixteen, it says, "Now while Paul waited for them at Athens." His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, if we skip down to verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To the Unknown God. So that's kind of a catch-all, right? They had idols to everything, and they thought, well, just in case we missed one, let's have one to the Unknown God. So Paul says, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So really powerful statement from the Holy Spirit through Paul trying to convey to them once again that these temples, these idol, these worshipped objects are worthless. They're unnecessary because God doesn't want men to worship him in that way. And these are just all false deities, if you will. Um, you know, there's also a lot of teaching in the New Testament against idol worship. In addition to the statements that we just read from Paul, he also said in Romans chapter 1, Jeff, you want to read that section for us? It's uh, 18 through 32, and, and I, let's just take a look at a, a section there, if we could. Sure. Before I do, though, let me make a real quick comment on the previous uh, section. Yeah, go ahead. You know, and our audience might think, well, you know, in very ancient times, you know, land of Canaan and pagan people, you know, worshiping idols. Yeah, somewhat to be expected. But, you know, under the more sophisticated culture of the Greeks and the Romans, with all the technology advances they had done and art and literature, etc., you know, you would think they would have put all that kind of, you know, idol worship behind them. But no, they had their own you know, pantheon of gods and all different kinds of gods and goddesses and all different kinds of roles for their gods and goddesses. Um, and in fact, as we'll see in a, in a few moments, uh, a lot of interesting characteristics of their gods and goddesses. So even their advanced culture, so even though they're much more advanced culturally and governmentally and technology and communication, etc., you know, they still have this attraction. But and we'll make more about that in a moment. But I, I want to mention that before I forget. Yeah, good point. Right. Thanks. Coming around to Romans chapter one, uh, beginning with verse eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. And of course, like with Greeks and Romans, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And of course, the, the passage Brian goes on to talk about, uh, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, which if you look at the description, basically refers to homosexuality. Yeah, it's such a important section of scripture for us all to consider, you know, going back to the beginning uh, 
of that section in 18 through 32 where it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So if you think about as we look around the world about us, we understand that every day we have a sunrise and we have a sunset. We have four seasons. The earth is just exactly the right distance away from the sun to be able to not freeze and not burn up. And the universe is so organized that, you know, scientists can tell us to the second when the next eclipse will occur. So it just shows God's glory. It shows organization. Whereas the atheists, the evolutionists would have you to believe all this just happened by chance. Well, organization never comes from chaos, right? And then as it says going on, uh, you know, professing to be wise, they became fools. So kind of like the point you made, Jeff, about the cultures, the Greek and Roman culture, they sure were proud and they had reason to be proud at some of the advancements they made with, you know, the architecture, the, you know, aqueducts to carry water miles away, these, this wonderful highway system that the Romans built that, you know, and even some of the engineering principles that we still follow to this day. Well, sometimes when, in fact, often when man becomes wise, thanks to, by the way, the knowledge that God gave them the ability to acquire, well, they start trusting in themselves or they start attributing all of this wonderful creation around us to chance or to man. And so as it mentions here, you know, if that's what they were going to believe, then God allowed them to believe it. And if they wanted to give in to their sexual lusts, God allowed that. And, and so, you know, that tells us, though, that God leaves it up to us. And if we want to corrupt ourselves, he's going to allow that to happen. But at a base level, once again, it shows how man seemingly always wants to attribute anything in life either to themselves or to some false deity. Uh, we see also in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, the Bible warns us and tells us that idolaters, idolaters shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. So that's talking about, you know, on the day of judgment, like we read in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're all going to stand before God and give an account. And as the scriptures also teach us, either you'll go to everlasting life or everlasting punishment. And, you know, idolaters, and when it talks about the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, that's talking about hell. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 9 through 11, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Very key statement there, right? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, and it goes on to say, will inherit the kingdom of God. So, you know, it's so very important to realize that we can be deceived and, you know, when you think about murderers and fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals, all these are lumped together with idolaters as something that's contrary to God's will. First uh, Corinthians 10, 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. First John chapter 5, verse 21, keep yourselves from idols. So, you know, we were, you had asked the question, Jeff, earlier, why, you know, was idolatry so attractive to the Israelites? Uh, why we ask the same here? Why was it so attractive to the Gentiles? Well, many different reasons. For instance, you know, popular culture, you know, food offered and sacrificed to idols was often sold in the local meat market. It was very popular to worship these idols and to, you know, have these big feasts that go along with it. Uh, Roman gods, you know, were somewhat at that time, as you kind of mentioned, Jeff, the preferred religion of the empire. People were fascinated with Zeus and all these different, you know, man-made entities and deities. They just thought it was great. You know, these were also relatable gods that many felt were just like themselves, you know, envious, lustful, scheming, capricious. So they saw in those gods a lot of the same qualities that were in themselves. And then you kind of touched on this earlier, Jeff, we see certainly like in the New Testament, like the Temple of Diana and so forth, you know, it was attractive because it often involved sexual activities, which allowed them to satisfy their fleshly lust. So sometimes people come to the erroneous belief that, well, if it makes me feel great, if it's so pleasurable, how can this possibly be wrong? Well, <laughs> 
it can be wrong because it's contrary to God's will. And God doesn't tell us to please ourselves through orgies and all these other twisted things that people were doing at that time. And frankly, unfortunately, still do today. Yeah, good points. You know, a couple other points I might make is, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we emphasized with uh, Romans 1, uh, uh, beginning with verse 18, where part of um, this rejection of the Creator and starting to serve the creation or starting to serve the creature, that one of the very first things that uh, Paul mentions in that context is being given up, or God gave them up to vile passions, you know, homosexuality. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, you mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and uh, nine through 11, where it talks about do not be deceived. You know, you mentioned fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, etc. And honestly, I think it's at the very least curious, if not meaningful, that idolaters, is listed right in the middle of a context of sexual sins. Fornicators, yeah. idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites. So again, probably a very strong draw to the lust of the flesh in general. Perhaps, you know, sexual lust of the flesh in, in particular, you know, constituting a very, very uh, strong draw or strong attraction to idolatry in you know first century of the church you know roughly you know 30 a.d 50 a.d 100 a.d you know two thousand years ago yeah and i think at a base level it's just satisfying our flesh right so today we see people that love to drink of course men has always liked to drink right that goes way back as well but whether it's drinking or drugs all of these different ways that we can satisfy our flesh and it just becomes so appealing because, well, that's what the devil's hoping it will, so that it takes our attention away from God. Right. Now, you make a good point, and, and this is kind of where we want to transition yet again. You know, hit the fast forward button. So we talked about the attraction of idolatry in Old Testament times. We just finished talking about the attraction of idolatry in New Testament times. Now, let's come to the present and talk about the attraction of idolatry in modern times. And, you know, for starters, you know, certainly it has to be admitted that there are a lot of uh, what we would understand to be idols, false gods, you know, out there in today's world. Uh, in, in fact, of course, we're coming at this from a, you know, Judeo-Christian, you know, Bible perspective. Uh, I mean, you can easily go to a source like Wikipedia and, and look up the topic of polytheism, you know, multi-gods. And you'll see a number of, you know, worldwide religions today that are, that admittedly multi-god, uh, gods and goddesses. You know, Hinduism certainly comes to mind. Uh, Buddhism, uh, most traditional African religions, uh, several from the Far East, including Taoism, uh, Shintoism, uh, even Wicca. Uh, kind of refers to, you know, multiple deities, multiple gods, multiple goddesses, etc. So when we say idols and idolatry, that may be what a, a lot of our listeners, you know, immediately fixate on. You know, Hinduism, classic example, uh, with, you know, Krishna and the other gods and goddesses and the statues, etc., and bowing down and burning incense to them, as typically observed in India, etc., and, you know, we can easily see that's idolatry. But it's not the only form uh, of idolatry or the only object of uh, worship uh, that we see today. Brian? Yeah, and we look at today, we also see the worship of angels or humans uh, in general. So, for instance, uh, when it comes to angels, if we were to look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9, here it says, Now I, John saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So we see that the angel was telling John, don't worship me. 
you only worship God. And, you know, Jeff, beyond that, we see today, many are fascinated with angels and they talk about things like guardian angels. And, you know, no doubt there's worship of angels in that respect. Uh, But this passage makes it very clear. We are not to worship angels. Also, the worship of men. You know, uh, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself also am a man. So here, scriptures make it very clear, we are not to worship men. Now, you think about the Catholics who call the Pope the quote-unquote Holy Father, uh, the priest are often referred to or required to be referred to really as father. Uh, You know, so this is blasphemous, right? I mean, the scriptures are very clear. We are not to give that level of veneration and respect to the Pope or to priests. They are men. And as we see here in Acts 10, we are not to worship men. Uh, Even beyond that, when you know, going back to Catholicism and the worship of the Mother Mary or, you know, Jesus's Mother Mary, and, you know, how they have labeled somewhere between, I don't know, one and 8,000 dead Catholics saints. They've given them that label of saints, where the scriptures talk about all Christians are saints. Uh, of course, to be made a saint or considered a saint, if you read the Catholic doctrine, you would have had to, you know, perform some miracle. Uh, but you'll see nowhere in the scriptures does the Bible talk about giving mankind a special designation of saint because they performed some miracle and some committee got together and said, well, then we should call them a saint. No, all Christians are called saint in the scriptures. So just another example uh, about how this can be perverted. And we'll have more to say about this in our last segment uh, when we answer a question on this subject. Right. Well, and one other minor point I'll throw in there, in some ways with the Catholics, the you know designation of saints, you know, it's not just designation as a special class of, of people, as especially holy, but the fact that now that they have died and are somehow in the spirit realm, they can now be prayed to. They can be communicated to. You know, there are patron saints uh, that, you know, you can invoke their name and they have, you know, magical, mystical ability to perform various alleged, you know, deeds for you know us on this world in many ways brian in many ways just like the ancient you know pantheon of gods that the romans had or the greeks had with each of their gods or goddesses having you know special roles and you could pray to you know the god of your choice or to the god of a certain um uh, vocation uh and get special you know favors yeah, uh, from them. I think it's interesting how to your point you know the, they'll even say you can pray to them and so forth yet when we look in the scriptures, not even Jesus allowed to, those to pray to him. And in fact, we're taught he is our mediator and we only pray to God. So to put these men in the place of God is once again uh, blasphemous, really. Right. So now we kind of move on to, as we said earlier, there were two definitions, you know, worshiping a false God, but also worshiping the true God through some sort of physical image or picture or statue. You know, we saw previously Exodus 20, verse 4, as an example, no graven image. Similarly, Leviticus chapter 26, verse 1, etc. And yet even today, we do have, and I don't mean to be mean or anything, but we do have some people that in an attempt to worship the true God, try and portray that God, or try to portray the true God using some kind of physical image or picture or statue. And Brian, in all honesty, what I tend to think of in cases like that would be, for instance, you know, within Catholicism, and, you know, they will use various images of Jesus or or, um, uh, Renaissance renditions of Jesus and the Virgin Mary. uh, I don't want to say pictures, but, you know, artwork, Uh, you know, Jesus on the cross, etc. Again, as a physical image of uh, God and an attempt to worship God, would that not also fall under the canopy of idolatry? Certainly something to think about. And, and I'm not meaning to like pick on Catholics. 
but certainly want to at least raise the question if if worshiping the true God using some kind of a physical image is condemned in Scripture, is that what you're doing when you're worshiping or paying adoration to a artist's conception of Jesus or an artist's conception of Jesus on the cross? Some Something certainly, Brian, for our audience to think about. Yeah, it absolutely is, and a really good point. How about the worship of false concepts of the true God? So when you think about Islam, for instance, you know, strict monotheists denying the deity of Christ. And in fact, you know, they in essence worship Muhammad and elevate him above Jesus by saying, well, Jesus was just a prophet and so forth. How about Mormonism? You know, Jehovah is one of several deified humans. So once again, putting these humans on the same level as God. How about the Jehovah's Witnesses? You know, only the Father is deity. Jesus is in their mind simply a created angel, and the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. Yet the scriptures make it very clear that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are what we call the Godhead, or what the Bible calls the Godhead, and they are all in one. Uh, so in direct contradiction to that belief. How about oneness Pentecostalism, You know, where God is a single deity, that appears to man in different forms at different times. And so I think, Jeff, some of that might come from the confusion over the angel of the Lord and, you know, wrestling with Jacob and all these things, right? They kind of just assume, well, then that's just God who comes in different forms at different times. And there is no Jesus and Holy Spirit. Once again, twisting the truth and really denying other passages which clearly teach the opposite. Right. And I think with some of these points now, we're we're kind of moving beyond what people might consider as classical idolatry, like bowing down in front of a Hindu god or bowing down in front of Buddha, to using uh, or uh, elevating, if you will, people to a status that's like God, like with the Virgin Mary or with. Uh, uh, venerated saints now we're moving even a little bit further saying yeah i'm worshiping the true god but i'm using physical devices to do it or i'm worshiping the true god but it's really a misconception of the true god so now we want to take that almost to yet another level another form of idolatry that many people go oh no that's not idolatry what do you mean uh and that's money materialism our job our careers now before people go whoa wait a minute jeff you've gone way too far well hold on a second go over to colossians chapter 3 verse 5 a verse you may not be aware of where paul is, is through the holy spirit is trying to teach the colossians therefore put to death your members which are on the earth and he starts listing out a number of sins fornication uncleanness passion, evil desire, and, watch it, covetousness, greed, which is idolatry. Whoa, whoa, covetousness, idolatry? Hmm, interesting. Matthew chapter 6, 27, same thing, using slightly different words, points out that we cannot, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, mammon, money, etc., so now we see from these verses that the Bible, or God through the Bible, considers the adoration of, or the emphasis of, or striving for, or serving money, materialism, being greedy, as a form of idolatry. It's like you're putting these things First, you're putting these, you're elevating these things above God, and you're voting, you're devoting your time and your attention and your energy and your effort to serve these things, just like the ancient Israelites, just like the ancient Gentiles were serving Baal or Ashtaroth or Zeus or Diana, because it's now something a lot more important than serving the true god now this is one area that we're, we're starting to get into where people go whoa i hadn't even thought about that that 
you know, if I'm really emphasizing money a lot or keeping up with the Joneses or acquiring possessions or I'm spending a lot of time, you know, on my job or my career is my life, that you may have inadvertently become an idolater, which the scriptures clearly condemn, right? Yeah, and I like your definition because I do think that helps everybody understand, you know, anything that we're putting above God or in place of God is really how we should be looking at it. And, and pleasure is the next one we want to consider, which falls into that same realm. So Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 says, Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. 1 through 4. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, we are in the last days today, and I think if we all look around us, regardless of the country where you live in, you will see many are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And that's why they do drink alcohol, take drugs, you know, participate in sexual sins. Because that's their focus, right? And uh, we we think about you know extending that out to entertainment in general, uh, things like professional sports. You know, there are some athletes which people admire so greatly that they are in essence their idol. They look up to what they say and do, and they they hang on their every word. Uh, how about just recreation or hobbies? Uh, how we spend our time, the attention we give, and the effort we put in towards the pursuits of these things, and so forth. All of these are just examples, once again, of putting things before God and making them our idols. And you could even say, you know, taking it a step further, you know, pornography, uh, fornication and adultery, going back to the point that we made earlier, just seeking to satisfy our fleshly desires, and that becomes our focus. And it's, it's just scary, right, Jeff, when you think about once you start going down these paths with whatever it could be, entertainment, sports, sexual sins, all of these things, uh, it's easier just to get worse and worse. And I don't think anybody could deny it's just taking you farther away from the true and living God uh, and certainly is not going to be bringing you closer. Well, good point. Well, and even with, I mean, you know, some of these things are, you know, overtly sinful, but some of them, you know, are not. I mean, you know, just taking some time off, taking a vacation, doing some entertainment, having, uh, you know, recreational kinds of activities, having hobbies, you know, nothing inherently wrong in, in a lot of these things until and unless they start to grow, start to take over your life, start to drive your life or be the center and focus of your life instead of God being the center and focus of your life. And so it's almost like you've created this false idol that you're bowing down and worshiping. You're, you're, you're spending all this time and effort and adoration on, it's the center of your universe. And God says, no, I'm the center of your universe, or at least I should be. Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, sports figures. Um, I'm thinking also like people from Hollywood. Uh, you know, the pursuit of power and worldly fame, uh, elevating, once again, men to a position almost of worship. You know, you mentioned uh, a lot of people, you know, hang on every word of their favorite, you know, actor, actress, their sports figure, their rock stars, you know, whatever they say, you know, we want to do, we want to imitate, we want to follow along, we want to, you know, whatever their lifestyle, you know, we want that same kind of lifestyle. It's almost like they've become our God that we're following, you know, not in an ancient sense, but still in an idolatrous sense, you know, something we need to consider, which kind of, Brian, takes us to really what's at the core of a lot of this idolatry regardless of its form and that's really uh ourselves you want to comment on that yeah you know in second corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 it says and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again so we put aside ourself and of course we follow christ second timothy chapter 3 uh, verses 1 through 4, if you read in that section, part of it says, But know this, 
that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. So kind of like we observed a little bit ago, this, you know, once again becomes our focus, loving who we are. And, you know, this is, think about the image of somebody who, you know, spends all this time in front of the mirror, just making sure they look great and perfect, or they go to tanning beds so they have this perfect skin color or whatever, right? Well, isn't that just an example of having love for yourself? And and I'm glad you pointed out, Jeff, things like, you know, hobbies and those sorts of things aren't in and of themselves wrong, and neither is wanting yourself to look good. But I think we would all realize once you start spending an inordinate amount of time, it would be hard to say that you're not becoming a lover of yourself, which directly conflicts with what we just saw, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so sometimes people will say, well, you know, God just wants me to be happy. And, you know, I know what the Bible says, but I think or I feel or I want. Well, when people start speaking like that, I feel like that's pretty telling because, once again, they're saying it's all about me. And Jeff, you know, we have a few years ago, uh, in fact, it's been around a while, I know, but we talk about, well, we live in the me generation, right? Well, there's a lot of truth to that because people are self-centered and it is more, they care more about themselves, of course, than others and God and so forth. Right. Well, that's a good point because even, you know, even from the, like the atheist or skeptic or agnostic community, you know, they will talk about secular humanism or, um, since there is no God, then they will elevate, you know, humanity collectively, or maybe, you know, themselves individually, you know, to that level of, well, you know, we need to serve humanity, you know, humanity is the ultimate, uh, or the, you know, promotion of one's own individual, you know, rights, you know, becomes the greatest good. Um, and once again, in some ways, it, it's a pretty sophisticated kind of activity but like we're seeing in many ways it's really not that much different than the ancient canaanites or the greeks and the romans that decided not to obey or not to acknowledge the creator not to be thankful for the creator but they turned around and started worshiping the creation started worshiping the creature started worshiping basically themselves as reflected in their concepts of their gods well you know we haven't really evolved, you know, we humans haven't changed that much, you know, across the thousands of years, you know, similar emotions and such, similar desires, similar attractions. And so, yeah, we, we find idolatry equally attractive as, you know, quote unquote, ancient peoples. And to kind of sort of wrap this up before we go into our questions, hopefully what our audience can see is that you don't have to bow yourself bow yourself physically down in front of a graven image to be guilty of idolatry uh, that's number one number two that then back then same as now you know we moderns despite our sophistication have the same tendency to want to worship idols or idolatry Although, quite frankly, you know, our objects of our worship and our devotion and our service may be more sophisticated than the ancients, but we still have them. And as, we, as we've tried to point out, you know, anytime that we give anything or anyone, including ourselves, greater priority than God, guess what? We have become an idolater. Uh, I'm reminded of Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6. Repent and turn yourselves from your idols. So a question I would leave my listeners with, who do you worship? Or what do you worship? Is it really the true God in a way that he wants to be worshipped? Or is it really something else? And are you really an idolater? So I'll leave that with our audience to sort, sort of ponder, given some of the uh, thought-provoking examples we've provided today. Yeah, final thought for me on this, and, you know, you were talking about as we looked at, you know, men, their desire for idolatry under the Old Testament, under the New Testament, and our modern culture, 
You know, as Solomon said, right, in Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is that which what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. The nature of man, not because of God's creation. I mean, we also see, you know, that God created us in his image, Genesis 1.27. Uh, you know, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 says, God made man upright, but he sought out many schemes. So when I say the nature of man, it's because of our own desires we all tend to fall into this form of idolatry. And so, Jeff, I think you really asked the central question, who or what do you worship? And that's really our hope here is just to get us all to think about, am I an idolater and not really thinking about it in that way, right? And we just want to consider that. Right. Good point. Well, and, you know, there's another just kind of thought that you know, hit my head. You know, sometimes we hear about people, um, you know, we'll pick a, a local congregation. Uh, because of, you know, the way they worship, the service, the bands, the lights, the music. And when you sort of ask them about that, they'll say, oh, it's so wonderful. I feel this. Oh, and I really love it. And it really is very, you know, something I really enjoy. Well, even in that case, are you going to worship to worship God? Or are you going to worship to worship what you want? And if you want a, you know, rock star, big band concert thing because you like it, are you not worshiping yourself? Anyway, just, just kind of another uh, uh, an aspect uh, for our listeners to consider. Brian, I think that brings us to our uh, classical uh, questions section, doesn't it? Yeah. Definitely. So let's take a look at a few questions that have been submitted uh, on this subject. And the first one, Jeff, for you comes from Karen. And she asked, who is Mary aside from being a mother of Jesus? As a Christian, do we need to ask her to intercede when we pray? Or why do we not need to ask her to intercede or call her before praying as what the Catholic says need to pray for Mother Mary? Yeah, good question. Now, at least in the case of Mary, you know, simply speaking, she's just another person. She's another human. She was a sinner in need of a savior, just like all other humans. She lived, she died, and based on our understanding of the afterlife, she went to Hades, just like everyone else, where she waits for Jesus' second coming and the resurrection. Okay. So with that, that as a basis, we turn around and we look at the Catholic Church and the practice of Catholicism. And so they've done something that's sometimes called the veneration of Mary. And I've got a little bit of a quote here. Uh, In the Catholic Church, the veneration of Mary, Mother of Jesus, encompasses various devotions that include prayer, pious acts, visual arts, poetry, and music devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary, end quote. And as we tried to observe, and again, this is not meant to, you know, pick on Catholics or, or you know, bemean or belittle Catholics. Essentially, Catholicism has elevated Mary to a position that is somewhat equivalent to a deity or to a goddess. You know, they'll create statues of her. They'll bow down before her. They'll pray to her uh, and, and such. And and just as a quick side comment, there was a time when my uh, uh, Catholic grandfather was still living, and he came up here uh, to Denver uh, to visit uh, and wanted to, uh, basically, uh, he had ridden with my parents who had also driven up here, uh, and he didn't have transportation, but he wanted to be taken to a local Catholic parish to observe Mass. And so, you know, I took him. And I happened to follow him into the building, at least, you know, partway. And right there by the entrance, and I'd never experienced this before, so it was kind of shocking to me at the time. I was was pretty young. Right there, just inside the door, was this little statue. And it wasn't of Jesus. It was of Mary. And there's all these little um, votive candles around it and other little bits of, and I can't remember if there's like little flowers or something around this statue of Mary. And my mind just immediately flashed, whoa, hold on here a second. Just like an idol god. Uh, Which really, you know, honestly kind of shocked me at the time. Um, Now, certainly, we have to admit, you know, we cannot deny Mary had 
you know, pivotal role in Jesus's birth, you know, being selected by God for that role. And certainly she probably had, you know, influence over him, you know, while he was growing up in Nazareth. But to elevate her, to give her this special role, special power, pray to, sing songs of devotion to her, uh, you know, represent her visual arts, uh, etc. You know, would not this also be a modern expression of idolatry, just like bowing down in front of a statue and praying to Baal or Zeus or Buddha or Krishna or an angel or any other non-god? I mean, certainly, I would I would strongly encourage us to you know to kind of ponder that uh, and you know try to understand the ramifications of, of what it is we're really really doing. Brian, any thoughts on that one before I ask you uh, your question? Yeah, you know, it's I think what is really the most important thing here is that the Bible, and you've alluded to this, but I mean, the Bible in no way elevates Mary nor gives her any role in the Lord's church, period. And you can imagine if God wanted that, well, he would have told us, right? And he would have spelled out much like he does with elders, deacons, evangelists, and so forth, exactly what the her role would be and why. Well, it's just not in the Bible. So this is definitely a man-made practice, if you will, in, in elevating her. So, Okay. So Michael writes in, and he asks, The Bible teaches us to refrain from idolatry from anything that is not God. Does this include the Bible itself? I understand that the question seems a bit of a paradox. But when someone lives his life to the point that he will cite passages from the Bible and will even twist verses by adding or subtracting or by using a bias to redefine what is written, this causes issues within some churches. And so I think Michael basically is asking, can we elevate the Bible to a point of being an idol that we're worshiping, you know, instead of God. Yeah, he's right. It's a paradox, right? <laughs> I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever had somebody ask this or or to think about the Bible being an idol. And so I think, you know, the key distinction here is, you know, someone who twists verses or adds or takes away from the truth like he's referencing, the Bible calls a false teacher. And we see passages like Colossians 2a, where it warns us about this, you know, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, we looked at, uh, I think it was Smith's Bible Atlas definition of idol. You know, another definition, in when you look at the Greek word translated idol in Strong's Greek dictionary is... You know, an image that's worshipped either literally or figuratively. And we've covered that in this podcast, right? The literal or figurative worship. And so, you know, in theory, something like money, as we've talked about, right, or any other object that causes us to place that object before God can be considered idolatry. Uh, But given the fact that the Bible is God's instruction to mankind, I'm not really sure how someone could make that an idol because it's not an image, that people worship and you know it is in fact the word of god so you know and on top of that as we've been studying throughout this podcast the bible itself warns against idolatry in passages you know like first corinthians 10 14 colossians 3 5 and gives us many examples like we cited today of what idolatry truly is so jeff I'm not sure if you can, but I can't think of any way where the Bible could be considered an idol. No doubt there could be false doctrine and false teachers that twist the scriptures, but you know, by faith we accept this as the divinely inspired word of God. And as long as we accurately follow it, it's not going to be an idol. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. About the only thing I can think of that someone might start viewing or treating the Bible as a god or as an idol might be if they start treating it like a magic object or a magical talisman, like a rabbit's foot or something superstitious like... Put your hand on the Bible and you will be seen. Well, yeah. there's that. Um, I'm also thinking like, you know, it, it, it's featured prominently on their coffee table, but they never read it. Or they carry it in their purse, almost like a, as a good luck charm, even though they never read it. 
you know, I, I could, you know, I can maybe see viewing it that way from like a superstitious perspective where you're sort of treating it and, and worshiping it as some kind of object of worship. But yeah, for, for the most part, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't really think of any other, other aspects where the Bible could be considered an idol. Yeah, that's a good point, though, because, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember when it was captured. And, you know, of course, the Israelites even got to the point is all we have to do is march us out into a battle and we're going to win, you know. And then other nations felt like, hey, this is like a, a lucky charm, if you will, you know. <laughs> and uh, we know how that worked out. It didn't work out well for those who twisted its meaning. Anyhow. Yeah, good point. And so idolatry in a lot of different forms, perhaps those that our audience haven't even considered. Please prayerfully consider that. Brian, any uh, closing thoughts before we uh, vector folks over to our website? Uh, nope. I appreciate uh, everybody listening, and hopefully you'll be able to give some thought to what uh, what's involved with idolatry. So as we always like to do, we would refer our listeners back to our website at biblequestions.org. Look under the topics menu item. Now, in this particular case, because idolatry has such a broad reach of forms uh, and aspects and, and ways, you know, people or things can become objects of worship. There's a lot of material, a whole lot of topics. I'm just going to scratch the surface um, in what I'm about to say. So, you know, please come on over to the website, start, you know, looking around, you know, pick your favorite thing and see if you can find it as a topic. Here's a representative list. I for idolatry. Okay, that, that's pretty simple. G for greed. How about G for gambling? E for entertainment. N for the nature of God. And we talked about worshiping a, the a false concepts of the true God. M for Mary, mother of Jesus. P for pornography, uh, as well as P for pride and elevating ourselves. Uh, F for fornication, which we mentioned as part of you know, Old Testament attraction, New Testament attraction, modern day attraction. F for fornication. Uh, w for work, uh, secular. Again, jobs becoming uh, a source of almost idolatrous worship. Uh, w for worldliness. And the, the somewhat even broader category of uh, uh, C for Christian living. And maybe even A for angels. Again, just lots of topics, a lot of material, a lot of articles, a lot of scripture references, which we would encourage uh, our listeners to, you know, dig into, prayerfully consider, set aside maybe your initial shock at some of the things we mentioned today, and actually get into the Word and, and very carefully see if what you're doing is beginning to look and sound like something you shouldn't be doing, uh, too much emphasis uh, on that and not enough emphasis on God. And then, of course, as always, you know, have the, uh, the moral conviction to do what God wants you to do, to worship the only true and living God and be righteous in his eyes. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.